You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. There was a military coup d'etat in Argentina in 1976. And forgive me, I'm going to get a little Rachel Maddowy at the top of my show today, if that's all right. This right-wing military junta would wind up running the country for eight bloody years. More than 30,000 people were disappeared during Argentina's dirty war. Activists, union organizers, journalists. And most of the disappeared were young people, men and women in their late teens, 20s, early 30s, students. Some of the women who were arrested were pregnant because Argentina is an overwhelmingly Catholic country and because the men running the junta were themselves good Catholics. They didn't execute these pregnant women. They held them until they gave birth, and then they executed them. And their children, these stolen children, were given to childless military families to quote-unquote adopt and raise. More than 500 Argentinian children were stolen from their parents in this way, and it was only decades later that many would learn of their true identities and what happened to their actual mothers and fathers. Revisiting a shameful chapter in another nation's history is not meant to deflect attention from the shameful chapter or shameful chapters, plural, the dozens and dozens of them currently being written in our nation, in the United States. And the United States, of course, it must be acknowledged, played a role in Argentina's dirty war. Henry Kissinger, then the Secretary of State, encouraged the Argentinian coup leaders to destroy their opponents quickly. All those activists, union organizers, students and journalists, all those pregnant women. And he suggested they destroy them quickly so the dirty work could all be done before there was an outcry over human rights abuses. It was impossible to read this story in the Associated Press this weekend without thinking of Argentina's dirty war and appropriated children. The headline undersells the horror. Deported parents may lose kids to adoption. We are separating children from their parents at the border, still, including infants and toddlers. And as the AP reported this weekend, holes in immigration law are allowing state court judges to grant custody of migrant children to American families without notifying their deported parents. Most of the people who've had their children taken from them, the parents who've had their children stolen from them at our border, were claiming asylum, which is their legal right. These mothers and fathers were not breaking the law when they showed up at points of entry. They were following the law. And our government, in our names, took their children, dumped their children into cages and camps without any way to track these children, reunite them with their parents, and then deported their parents. The Office of Refugee Resettlement, a U.S. agency, is facilitating the thefts of these children, as are private adoption agencies like Bethany Christian Services. The AP story is a must-read and a harrowing read. It's also an indictment. If you didn't see it, go look it up and read it. Henry Kissinger, that old war criminal, urged the Argentinian generals to move fast so they could get their bloody work done before outrage at the human rights abuses in that country could build. But this hasn't been happening quickly here. This hasn't happened fast. The abuses at our border of migrants and asylum seekers and their children unfolded slowly over the last three years. And sometimes, I don't know how we sleep at night. 
impeachment or defeat at the polls next November. I want this nightmare to end. But there are people out there, mothers and fathers, for whom this nightmare will never end. And these kids, like those 500 kids in Argentina, are one day going to learn the truth about what happened to them. The leaders of the military junta in Argentina were tried and convicted and some went to prison and then they were released and then they were tried again and sent to prison again. The president during the military dictatorship was sent to prison for kidnapping those 500 children. There are lawsuits coming in the United States about this. And if there's any justice, which there may not be, there will be indictments and trials and long jail sentences for Stephen Miller and anyone and everyone in the Trump administration, including Trump himself, who had a hand in kidnapping children from their parents here, our dirty war against immigrants. Sorry, this is so heavy. I'm actually making a bit of an effort to keep the top of the show lighter, but I literally can't think of anything else this morning but those stolen kids and their grieving, gutted parents. And there's really no graceful way to pivot from this topic. Maybe three solid minutes of me banging my head on this desk. So instead, I'll just say... Coming up on today's show, on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, author Simon Doonan joins us to talk about his new book, Drag the Complete Story, and I challenge him, can he, can Simon Doonan, get me back into drag? You can subscribe to the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, twice as long and no ads, at savagelovecast.com. All that coming up on today's show. Hi. I'm in my early 30s, and I live in a large city on the East Coast. Um, I'm calling because I was seeing this guy, and he knew that I was really paranoid about getting pregnant. And he told me that he had a vasectomy. And then we were seeing each other for a year, and then I noticed that I was getting symptoms like I was pregnant, but I couldn't believe it. And I took a test, and it turned out that I was pregnant. And while I am pro-choice, I found the whole experience was just the worst situation of my life, going through the whole procedure to not be pregnant anymore. And then after that, I found out that while I was pregnant, he told another girl that he had a vasectomy. And then I found other women who he also got pregnant, um, some who had abortions, and one woman who kept the child who he has this estranged child who it's unclear if he ever met that child and owes so much money in child support that he can't even get a passport to travel out of the country. Um, so I hired a lawyer and the lawyer said that um, we have an action for battery, but all of my friends think that this is basically my fault. And they um, disagree with me getting a lawyer and they disagree that he did anything wrong to me. But I really feel that he traumatized me and other women and he robbed me of my choice not to get pregnant and stole my first pregnancy from me. So my question is, I basically do you think that this is a trauma. And my second question is, could I be friends with these people who support him? He's a part of our community, and a lot of people have just taken his side, defending him or saying that these are things that happen and risks that you take when you have sex with someone. I just don't think it's right. 
You don't say whether you confronted this guy about the lie. And my guess, and maybe you didn't feel you needed to mention it because it's obvious, my guess is he's lied about having a vasectomy. Vasectomies have a failure rate of 0.15%. The failures tend to evidence themselves within the first couple of months after the vasectomy. So he knows with all these women that he's knocked up, he knows that he either didn't have a vasectomy or the vasectomy that he claims and lies about having had failed. Obviously, this dude has some sort of impregnation, kink, fetish, obsession. And obviously, he has power and control issues and gets off on the thought of his dick like some sort of sex partner destruction missile. Remind, listening to your call reminds me of the guys who claimed during the worst years of the HIV AIDS epidemic that if the person that they were fucking didn't ask them to wear a condom, even though they knew themselves to be positive and they didn't know the status of the person they were fucking, they didn't have to wear a condom because people are responsible for their own choices. Kind of the bullshitty things, similar to the bullshitty things, your soon-to-be ex-friends are saying to you about this piece of shit who sexually assaulted you. He obtained your consent to sex under false pretenses. I'm with your lawyer. There is a case here and you should bring it and you should find out if there are any other women out there in your social circle that he's dated and that he's also done this to who might want to join your lawsuit. Not that you're going to get much money out of this asshole. He's already being dinged for the child support payments he's not making. But you can and you should make an example of him. He should be held accountable. And whatever community that you're in where he's also a part of that community, a community with apparently no respect for women, for women's bodily autonomy, and a community where there is no accountability, even just social accountability, for men who behave terribly, get the fuck out of that community. Find or create better communities for yourself. Make new and better friends. And sue that motherfucker. Prosecute him. Take him to court. File a complaint. Hold him accountable. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy Out Rescue. I'm a hetero, cis, 40-something male living in a large East Coast city. So I think I'm just out of a three-and-a-half-year relationship, and maybe I'm just dense, but I can't tell. Uh, the relationship's been a good one overall. The sex was excellent. I got along with her and her family, her friends, her kid. We've supported each other through some difficult events, and I think we've been good to and for each other in many ways. This year, I've gone from two good jobs to having some serious money problems. I've been mostly unemployed since February. I'm struggling to pay basic bills. I have over 20 years of experience in my industry, but all I can find is a stressful part-time retail job, so things could be better. I've also noticed some changes in her this year. Uh, she lost her temper a lot more, wasn't communicating well, not respecting some boundaries. I've seen her go from a social drinker to what very well could be a problem drinker, and her pot use has also escalated dramatically. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, a few days after I started the retail job, she either wouldn't text me back or I'd get a very perfunctory reply. It was kind of out of character, and I thought maybe I've been too negative or complained a lot recently, and maybe a bit of space would be a good idea. I did some reading about how to take a break, even listen to a Lovecast episode in which you discussed a healthy way to go about it. I convinced her to have a talk, and sure enough, we'd both been thinking about giving each other some space and alone time. She said she didn't want to break up or date other people. She told me she feels very helpless about my current situation. And I thought we agreed about what we wanted from this break, some boundaries and logistics, such as monthly check-ins, and she said she hoped I could get my confidence back. 
uh, I thought we were on the same page, but she just blew through all of what we talked about. I mean, she wished me a happy birthday on Facebook and Instagram, but then promptly made excuses to avoid our first monthly check-in and asked me to take her credit card off a bill that we share and, and some other of what looked like some disrespectful gestures that indicate she's pushing me away. I'm not comfortable with this, and I can't tell what's going on, but as I said, maybe I'm just really dense. Uh, like, has she checked out and the relationship is over and I'm just in denial? Or is it really just some alone time, but she just unilaterally decided to handle it in her own way? Uh, did we miscommunicate somewhere, such as how we're defining a break? Or is she waiting for me to get back on my feet? And if that's the case, do I really want to be in a relationship or even stay friends with someone who only wants me around when it's convenient. I know you hear worse stories and this isn't exactly ghosting, but after three and a half years, I'm feeling abandoned and pushed away at a really bad time in my life. So, uh, Dan, would you please offer some perspective about what's happened and maybe some advice on what, if anything, I can do. The more rules and rituals you establish or create to manage your time apart, the more opportunities you have to fuck that up, the more opportunities they have to fuck that up. Seems a little elaborate to me, these monthly check-ins and whatever else that you guys established as the protocol for your time apart, for your alone time. And perhaps since you seem to be the one who is invested in these protocols and these rules, maybe they were your idea and she just agreed and said the things that people often say during a breakup that aren't necessarily true, which can include, I don't really want to break up even as they know in their souls and their hearts that breaking up, even if it's not what they really want is what they're really doing. And it kind of sounds like she's broken up with you, that she's separated from you in a more profound way than you were willing to allow her to separate from from you when you established all of these protocols and rules about how your temporary, a part-time, alone-time pseudo-breakup was going to work. My advice to you would be to pay attention to her actions and not her words. And not getting a lot of words from her since you're not getting the calls that you were promised during your separation, during your trial separation. Sounds to me like she's disengaged. Maybe it's the pot, maybe it's the alcohol. But it's definitely going to be a benefit, I think, to you. You're in a rough place in your life professionally, and that may require all of your focus at this time. And and maybe it would be a boon to you, a benefit to you, to have romance and managing a difficult romance at a difficult time in both of your lives, just to have that off your plate. And your focus can then exclusively shift to finding a way back into your field and finding a better job and reestablishing yourself and if she comes running once you got that better job and you've reestablished yourself and your cash flow is better, then maybe she's only interested in you when you can take care of her in whatever ways you may have been taking care of her, being generous to her in whatever ways you may have been being generous to her. And then you have to ask yourself if you want to be with somebody who's only there for the good times. And if it's clear that she's only there for the good times, if indeed she comes running back to you once, you know, with all your focus on your professional life once you get that back in order and things are clicking for you again yeah if she comes running back to you then you have a decision to make about whether you want to be wanted conditionally or whether you want to be wanted unconditionally whether you want to be with somebody who's only interested in you in flush times as opposed to somebody who's going to stick by your side when the shit hits the fan Hi, Dan. I'm a 57-year-old woman on the East Coast, married to the same man for 20 years. 
Our two kids are mostly grown and are increasingly independent. We have a terrific sex life, better than ever really, and are enjoying this well-earned, relatively mellow phase of our life together. Last spring, I became reacquainted with a guy I'd vaguely known in college who lives on another continent. I'll call him Link. Link is gay and married to an older guy who lives on yet a third continent half the year. Link and I began corresponding long letters, often daily. It is sort of a witty Dorothy Parker Robert Benchley sort of correspondence, if that means anything to you. We read books, discuss politics, and are each other's confidants and sounding boards. While our friendship is sort of flirty, it is not and never has been at all sexual. It is, however, quite emotionally intimate and has become extremely important to me. His sensibility has encouraged me towards greater kindness generally. Even my husband and kids have noticed it. And the correspondence has inspired me to begin writing creatively again, which I had not done for years. Link comes back to the States every 12 to 18 months, and last summer we met up in various American cities. I was in for work on the company Dime, shared hotel rooms, and even a bed once, though, again, nothing remotely sexual. My husband has met Link, who crashed on our couch once, and though he is clearly not interested in being friends with Link, he's fine with me having this platonic friendship. He himself has a long-term friendship with a straight, now recently divorced woman outside of our relationship, which he claims is completely platonic, and I believe him, though I would not be comfortable with the two of them traveling alone or sharing a bed under any circumstances. Here is the issue. Link has invited me to visit him, and we have begun discussing possible tra possibly traveling a bit over there. I very much want to take him up on it. I have a ton of frequent flyer miles, so the cost is theoretically not an issue. I would be fine with my husband coming with me on this trip, though it is to places he has no interest in visiting, and I don't have enough miles to cover both tickets. All of our money is combined, and we contribute the same income to our finances. Is it weird that I have this intense platonic friendship outside of my marriage, even if the spouses are cool with it? I'm afraid to even bring this up for fear of my husband shooting down the idea and possibly telling me enough is enough already with the constant communication with another guy. Also, I don't want to hurt him by saying I want to go without him, even though I sort of do. I have other dear male friends, gay and straight. But this one does feel different somehow. Am I fooling myself that my very intense and loving feelings for Link are not sexual? Should I just be happy with what is clearly a better deal than many married women my age have and drop this travel idea for the sake of domestic harmony? How can I approach asking my husband for permission to take such a trip, and what should I do if he says no? If you ask and your husband says no, you should do what you would expect your husband to do. If he asked to go traveling with his close, platonic, straight female friend and you said no, you would want him to honor that no for your reasons. You weren't comfortable with the idea of your husband traveling extensively or spending the weekend or sharing a bed with this person that he might be tempted, could possibly be intimate with. Now, you can't be intimate with your friend because he's gay and you're straight. You have what sounds like a really powerful intellectual connection and a romantic friendship. And romantic friendships are wonderful things. You ask me if this is weird. Your friendship with this person who has done so much good for you in your life that you've benefited so extraordinarily from this friendship. Your kids have noticed, your husband's noticed that because of whatever anti-poison link has been pouring in your ear. This man has been pouring in your ear. You're a kinder, gentler, more patient person and a better wife and better mother because of this guy. And so you ask if it's weird. No, it doesn't sound weird. It sounds wonderful. 
And there are studies out there that show that having really intimate, connected relationships with people who aren't your spouse doesn't threaten or undermine marriages if everyone's secure and not a weaky, self-centered bag of slop who can't stand the idea of their partner having anyone else in their life who provides them with any sort of emotional sucker. But these kinds of relationships make primary relationships stronger and more resilient. We need confidants in our lives. We need close, intimate friends. We need not just a spouse, perhaps, but we need a best friend. And it's You know, people like to say, oh, my husband is my best friend. My wife is my best friend. Yeah, those are two separate roles and bundling them together is often a mistake. And other studies have shown that couples, long-term couples who've been together for decades who do things like, oh, occasionally take solo vacations, occasionally travel with friends as opposed to with their spouses. They then come home and they have things to share with their spouse. They have new things to talk about. Maybe they visited a place that they thought their spouse would love and they're excited to tell them about it so that next time they go to this place, they can bring the spouse or travel alone with the spouse. That these, this exactly what you propose, a vacation with your bestie, is good for your marriage. Not necessarily bad for your marriage, but because your finances are merged and because your husband has a say, you would need to ask him. And again, if the answer is no, if he's not comfortable with this idea at least yet, you have to honor that no. You have to make sure that your husband understands that he comes first and his emotional comfort matters more to you than your desire to gallivant about Europe or wherever the fuck with this guy, with your friend. He might say yes, though. Sounds like your husband isn't threatened by this guy or insecure about your relationship. He might be jealous about the idea of of you running around doing these things that, you know, couples typically imagine themselves doing together or traveling around Europe. And in his jealousy, want that experience to be something that you two share. Then you can have a conversation about how this experience doesn't have to be mutually exclusive, that you can do this with your friend And do it on the cheap with your friend, but you can also then make a long-term plan to do this kind of grand tour with your husband too. I would encourage you to revisit your fatwa against him ever traveling with his platonic female best friend. Your husband trusts you alone with this man who identifies as gay. Probably goes a long way toward convincing your husband that he can trust you alone with this man. You would have to cover a little bit more ground emotionally, to trust your husband alone with this woman that he has this relationship with. But not every man who happens to be straight wants to sleep with every woman who happens to be straight. Not every man who has a female friend is interested in her sexually. It is possible for straight men and straight women to have close, intimate, best friendy kind of relationships, relationships, again, that will contribute to the strength and success of your marriage or their marriage with opposite sex partners where the relationship is not sexual and there is no sexual interest on either side. You could ask your husband for more reassurance about that. You could drill down. If you wanted to travel with this guy and he wanted to travel with her, you could have a conversation, not just with your husband, but with her and see if that doesn't set your mind at ease. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Refuse. I am a cishet female in my early 30s from the East Coast. I just recently left an 11-year relationship and I'm new to the online dating thing. I've been having actually really good experience. The first couple guys I went out with were considerate and fun and I had a great time. But recently, I went out with a guy 
who on the first date, we didn't really discuss a whole lot about kink or sex in detail. Um, but while we were hooking up, he started telling me that he was going to try to get me pregnant, that he wanted to get married. And I was just trying to play along. If that's his kink, I'd want to be kink friendly. Maybe that's naive and dumb, but um, I played along. That's what he wanted to hear. And then he started talking about water playing, me play, peeing on his face and fingering his ass. And I, I just really escalated. We finished up and while I was in the bathroom showering, he came in and pissed in the in front of me, like didn't knock, just came right on in and did his thing. And maybe that, I don't know. I don't know, Dan. I didn't want to ghost him, but I don't really have a whole lot to say to him after that. And he recently messaged me and kind of got shitty with me about it. Um, telling me he could take rejection, but he clearly can't. But that leads me to my question. When, when is it appropriate to like bring kinks on somebody? Obviously not during your first sexual encounter, I wouldn't think. But, hey, I don't know. I'm a neophyte at this. What do you think, Dan? Well, if you meet someone through a kink site, if you meet someone on a FetLife or a Recon, you're allowed to roll your kinks out immediately. In fact, you may have led with your kinks. But if you're on a regular old dating app and you meet somebody and hook up, the wrong time to spring your kinks on them is during sex and you were within your rights to ghost on this guy. There's nothing necessarily wrong with an impregnation kink. There are guys out there who have impregnation kinks and not all of those guys are straight guys. If you dig around on the darker corners of the fetish websites, you will find gay dudes who are into impregnation and you will find photo manipulated dirty stories with guys who got pregnant after being fucked in the ass and a lot of dirty talk about knocking a guy up. So it's not just straight guys who have this impregnation thing. And there are certainly women out there who are turned on by the idea of impregnation, but you don't just spring that on someone. You don't spring piss play on someone. Not that he sprang it on you. He raised the subject through dirty talk of his interests. And maybe he needs to hear about these things in order to get hard and get off. If so, then he also needed to maybe roll that out before your first sexual encounter. But I have always believed that, you know, if you're kinky, it's fine to be kinky. If you meet somebody through a vanilla kind of route, if you meet somebody on a vanilla dating website who may be kinky themselves, you're not the only kinky person on the vanilla dating websites. Or if you meet somebody through work or friends or socializing and you have kinks, I think those first few times that you have sex before you lay your kink cards on the table you want to demonstrate to them that you're good at vanilla sex, too, and that when you lay your kink cards on the table, they're not doomed. Not that I think kinks are dooms. I think kinks are Christmas mornings. They're fun presents to open. But they're not signing up for only going through the motions of your kink for the rest of their lives. Vanilla is something that you enjoy and you can do, and you've already demonstrated that to them. And I think when you roll your kinks out, when you lay those kink cards on the table, you should emphasize that, that these are your kinks. These are things that turn you on in a particular way. Also, vanilla sex turns you on and you're interested in meeting their needs. You just want to put your needs out there too. This guy did none of that. This guy obviously has both boundary and 
common sense issues, demonstrated poor judgment, also demonstrated cloddishness in walking into the bathroom while you were taking a shower, a moment you might have wanted or expected, a little bit of privacy, even in someone else's house, and took a leak. You know, if it was an emergency, that's what kitchen sinks and hot water and a little bleacher for. So, yeah, he did it all wrong. And obviously you're a woman who's willing to go there, maybe willing to finger a dude's ass, maybe willing to engage in a little bit of piss play if you have a good feeling about the person who's interested in doing those things with you, also interested maybe in a little dirty talk about impregnation as a kink. But not with this guy. This guy went about it all wrong, made you feel uncomfortable in his presence, made you question his judgment, and made you feel unsafe and disrespected. And you are allowed to reject the motherfucker already. And again, I'm not a big fan of ghosting in general. I think we should err on the side of using our words, or if you want to do it via text, using your thumbs. But this is an instance where I could sign off on just disappearing on a motherfucker. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old bisexual male-presenting non-binary person. I don't know if that's all the labels work anymore, but... Due to my upbringing, I really have no experience with meeting people or in relationships. I live in New York, which is pretty much one of the biggest cities for people around my age to go and simply meet each other and uh, hook up. But I'm completely failing at it. I go to bars, I go to places, and I just really don't know what to do. I was hoping uh, you can go and give me tips on how to meet people and I guess go and develop uh, some confidence to go and replace my inexperience so I can hopefully get experience one day. <laughs> and if you can, if you have any tips on how to go and get over that uh, small little pity party you have when all you hear is uh, no, even though I know not entitled to anyone or anything, not anything. People aren't things. You're not entitled to anyone or anything. And people are also things. People are objects too, not just objects. That's the important thing to remember, but you're allowed to want. And when the things that you want aren't in your life, you're allowed to have feelings about that. And sometimes those feelings, including feelings of self pity, if you don't, allow yourself to stew in them if you don't allow yourself to succumb to resentment and bitterness can be very motivating. They prompt you to get out there and do something about it so you can start to feel better because you have more of the things in your life, including companionship, intimacy, friends, lovers, that you would like to have. All right, when you go to the bars, when you go out to places, look around. Most people don't go out to these places alone. They go out to these places with a couple of friends or a little posse, people that they're not sexually interested in so that they have someone to chat with. And that's an important aspect of seeing people out in bars. You kind of want to see them with friends because just the existence of friends is sort of a low bar vouching for them. Oh, this person has enough social skills to have people who enjoy their company. Maybe I would also enjoy their company. That person who is interacting with a few friends in a bar is much more attractive than the person who is standing in a corner of the bar all by themselves, not talking to anyone. So look around your life. Who do you know who is single and might like to run around town with you a little bit? Ask that person to hang out with you and just be blunt. I want to go out. I want to hang out. I want to meet people. And 
you know, I could use a wingman running around buddy. I would also be happy to be your wingman running around buddy. Let's get a few people together and go out and socialize. You will, A, be more attractive to people you haven't met in that bar, to strangers, by dint of being with people. And B, even if you don't meet anybody when you're out that night looking for the kind of companionship or lover that you'd like to find, whether you're looking for a lover for an evening or forever, you will have a better time. It won't feel like time wasted. You won't stand in a corner feeling self-conscious about being alone. Even if you don't meet anybody else, you will have had a nice time out with your friend or your friends. Also, get online. 80% of queer couples meet online these days. Plurality of straight couples meet online these days. Most people, most people who are coupled or partnered, whether again it's for the evening or the rest of their lives, met online. And those are usually the first time, face-to-face, one-on-one meetings. Have a few interactions with somebody, establish mutual interests, establish mutual attraction, yes, based on your accurate recent photos, and then propose a coffee date, Meet up at a time when you have an engagement, you have something you have to go do afterwards, so there's no expectation or pressure of hanging out or anything happening just then. Just a quick meet up for coffee to establish that you are as attracted to each other in person as you are via the internet, via DM. Don't overinvest. Don't sink too much time or emotional energy into some torrid direct message or text message affair because you may meet up with somebody And you may not click in person. And then the larger the emotional investment, the larger the investment of time and sharing that you've made, you know, sharing of your feelings and hopes and dreams and desires, the larger investment you've made in advance of that first meeting, if it doesn't work out, and most don't, the more hurt you're going to be or the more hurt they're going to be and the more disappointed you're going to be or the more disappointed they're going to be or you're both going to be. And it's just not worth setting yourself up for that kind of sense of failure and futility. So keep it brief in advance of that first meeting. And then if you like each other at that first meeting, get carried away via text, but then meet up again sooner rather than later. But you live in New York City and it sounds like you like to go out and you'd rather meet people out in meet space IRL in real life, like they were saying on the internet 20 years ago. So I would urge you to do that. The thing it sounds like you're doing wrong is you're going out alone. Now, some people go out alone and they have the self-confidence or the charisma. And some people just got that kind of charisma where people want to come up and talk to them even if they're alone. But if you don't have that kind of self-confidence, you don't have that kind of immediate pull, go out with friends. And you don't have to sneakily insinuate yourself into a friend group and manipulate them into going out with you at a time where you might want to pick up other people or interact with other people. You just be honest about what you're doing. Hey, I would like to go hang out at this event, maybe meet some people. Why don't we go out together? Why don't we hang out together at this event? Would you like to come with me and see what they say? They say, yes, great. Somebody that you just asked said no, ask somebody else. Hi, Dan. I am about to break up with my long-term partner. We live together. We have no kids. We're not super duper enmeshed like on paper, but obviously emotionally and socially, we spend all of our time together. And I'm just kind of wondering if you have any general advice for how I can best prepare myself for this. I've kind of started putting feelers out to my friends, like, oh, I might be doing this. I might be leaning on you a little bit harder. Uh, Maybe plan a fun trip, start purchasing my own furniture. I don't know, Dan, what am I not thinking of? Because this is obviously gonna hurt like a motherfucker. And I would just 
help myself, you know, not have it hurt quite so much. And I would just love to hear some words of wisdom from you. Well, first things first, I hope your soon-to-be ex-boyfriend isn't also a listener and this isn't the first he's hearing of it. I would hate to think that he just got dumped live on my podcast. All right, sounds like you're doing everything right. You really don't need my help. I don't think you need my advice. You've put out feelers to friends. That's the most important thing you can do. Let your friends know that you're going to be leaning on them a bit more in the future for emotional and and social support. And you're going to ask them to indulge you a little bit more of their time and attention than you've required or your friendship has required in the past because you are going to be sad and single. And yeah, sometimes when you do the dumping, when you initiate the breakup, it's still a big sad. It's not just the person who gets dumped, who's hurt in the wake of uh, the end of an affair, the end of a relationship, you know, relationships sometimes end not in anger and not because they must or, you know, the partner that's being dumped is a horrible monster or a motherfucker who has to go. Sometimes they just run their course and there is a lot of shared history and a lot of good times. And you're going to miss the emotional connection and that sense of comfort that is being with someone, you know, in the day to day, that kind of routine, casual intimacy who gets you and you've carved a deep enough groove into each other that you, you fit together well. And when that is taken from you and it's ripped from you, even if you're the one who ripped it away or you ripped yourself away or you ended the relationship, there's sadness there. You're still allowed to grieve that and you're still allowed to feel your feelings. It's not just a dumped party in the wake of the end of a relationship who feels feelings and is allowed to feel those feelings. So I'd encourage you to be sad. And to do everything that I've encouraged, that you've heard me encourage on the show, people who've been dumped to do. Eat a lot of ice cream. Get out of the house. Go to the gym. Lean on your friends with the understanding, the explicit understanding, that at a certain point, they are empowered. They are ordered to tell you to shut the fuck up and to talk about something else. And maybe to talk about them and their relationships a little bit. And uh, change the subject from you, your feelings, the end of your relationship. After you've had a good, like two, three, four weeks to talk about pretty much nothing else. But after those three or four weeks, it's really important that you begin to shift your focus, even if you have to wrench your focus away from your feelings, your problems, the end of the relationship, to fake it a little bit, to turn your attention to something, someone else, someone else's feelings, someone else's problems, to be the friend to others, even four weeks after the breakup that your friends have been to you in the immediate wake of your breakup. Also a good idea to plan a couple of getaways, those trips to start building new solo memories and to get out there in the world. It's important to leave the house. I think the wallow stage, the too sad to go anywhere, too sad to do anything, first week or two. But after that, even if you're still feeling tremendously sad, important to get the fuck out of the house. And getting the fuck out of town is a really good way to get the fuck out of the house. My heart goes out to you. My heart goes out to your boyfriend, your soon-to-be ex-boyfriend. Hopefully, he's not a listener. Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old straight male from the East Coast calling in for the first time. And I know you like wedding questions, so I've got a wedding question for you. I'm at a wedding right now, cocktail hour. And my cousin is here with a date. And the last night, he was FaceTiming with another girl. Now, question, they're just friends. 
but he traveled out of state to go to the wedding. Should he be FaceTiming with another girl, even if they're just friends, and he's a day to the wedding? Congratulations to the bride and groom, whoever they are. It must be a really exciting, eventful wedding if this is the kind of shit people are thinking and talking about, or this is the kind of shit you yourself are thinking and talking about during their wedding. Who gives a fuck who your cousin is FaceTiming during the wedding? Yeah, he's away at a wedding. He's there with a date, and he briefly... I assume briefly, I imagine that if he was on FaceTime for three or four hours with this friend of his back at home that you would have mentioned that he briefly FaceTimed with somebody else. He made a phone call during this destination wedding, I presume, since everybody traveled to it. And I don't see the sin in that. I would perhaps take this question a little bit more seriously if it were your cousin's date that had called. Now, maybe I can infer from the fact that you even know about this, that there was some scandal or controversy or or perhaps your cousin's date was upset by this. And that's how everybody found out. How did everybody find out about this fucking FaceTime call? Last time I made a FaceTime call, I don't think anybody but the person I FaceTime called knew about it. But if it was because this date of your cousin's was upset and made a scene... I think that maybe she's the problem. Your cousin's not the problem. Your cousin has a friend. It's a platonic friendship. It's a platonic friendship with somebody who happens to be of the opposite sex. And he gave this person a call. He's away at a wedding. He's not in a secret, undisclosed location, cut off from all communication with the outside world. We are still, when we are trapped at other people's weddings, allowed to touch base with friends and family and coworkers and colleagues who aren't trapped with us at this destination wedding. So, yeah, I don't see how this is a problem, A, unless it was a problem for the date. And even if it was a problem for the date, I don't see how it's any of your business or mine. Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old woman from Texas, and I am in a monogamous relationship with a man, and we've been together for about nine years now, which I know is crazy since we're so young, but we're actually really happy. I love our relationship. I am so grateful for it every day. Um, The only problem is that I'm starting to get kind of bored with sex. And I know this is like a common issue and we have, you know, done some things to make it more interesting, like trying out like white bondage, role playing. And that's all fun, but I'm still kind of bored. And for the first time, I started feeling like I want to, I don't know if I would want to have sex with a different person. So I did bring up the idea of an open relationship. I mean, he didn't like completely freak out, but he was not happy about it and the more I think about it I don't even know if I really need to have sex with other people I'm just bored and after listening to the love cast it sounds so fun to have all these fun new sexual experiences and I can't get it out of my head so can you think of any other specific big adventures we can go on together that are still, you know, kind of part of a monogamous commitment. I was specifically thinking having sex in front of others sounds like really fun and scary, which is like what I want. How would I do that? I don't know. I was like 
Googling it and I couldn't really find like a real answer. Would it be like swingers clubs, but just like be like, we're not going to swing with anyone else. I just like have no idea. People ask me all the time if I'm ever shocked by a question or if I've gotten a question recently that shocked me. And while there's nothing shocking about the meat of your question, you're a woman in a long-term relationship and you're bored, I would encourage you to pick up and read, as I'm encouraging so many women in your situation right now to pick up and read Wednesday Martin's terrific book, Untrue. I was shocked by at least a part of your circumstance, not really your question, 22 years old and with the same guy for the last nine years, you with the guy now that you were dating in middle school? Blah, blah, blah. That is so rare. Holy crap. You are, well, I can't call you a unicorn. Unicorn means a very specific thing. CBS, you might have wanted to Google it before you created a TV show called Unicorn that's about not unicorns. But you are rare and it is perfectly understandable that nine years into a relationship that you began when you were in middle school you're bored anybody would be bored anybody in your shoes would probably be curious about what it might be like to be with other people and so i validate your feelings i validate your desire to to shake it up, to get out there and have some adventures and have some fun. Now, I am not saying that you have to be non-monogamous to have adventures and have fun. I'm not telling you that if monogamy is what you and your boyfriend have been doing since you were in middle school, that you need to stop doing that now, that that's the only way to address or correct for boredom, because it's not. But you at least to correct for boredom, you have to put it on the table. You have to acknowledge it. You have to have the courage to look your partner in the eye and say, I'm bored. And that's not something you're laying at their feet. That's something that you are both responsible for. And it's only something that they can address or work on. And sometimes it's only something they can also admit to feeling if you've taken that first step and said, hey, look, I'm bored. You're probably bored too. We've been together a long time. We've been together since we were really, really young and we need to find a way to keep this sexual connection, to keep this relationship exciting. And if we're not going to open it up, which is something that I'm frankly curious about, but if we're not going to do that because that has to be a mutual decision, we need to find other ways, other things that we can do together, other adventures that we can go on together as a couple, a couple who doesn't have sex with other people, so that we're not so fucking bored that eventually one or the other or both of us cheats and destroys the relationship potentially in the process. You also say that you're exploring, you know, some light bondage and some role play. So in addition to swingers clubs, there are BDSM parties. There are BDSM community meetups, but also then play parties where you and your boyfriend can go. And what, and what you'll notice if you go to BDSM play parties is that it's not always about sex or about sexual contact, that someone might be tying up somebody else's partner uh, somebody who may be more skilled at, you know, Shibari-style elaborate rope bondage will be tying somebody else's partner up while their partner is right there, maybe assisting. Maybe they're showing that person some moves, but it's still, a, you know, an adventurous erotic experience involving more than just you and your partner, but stops well short of any form of uh, sexual contact. And maybe your partner would be comfortable with that. And maybe that would be a way for him to see that opening up the relationship uh, just a little bit, just to others being involved in a way that feeds your 
shared eroticism isn't the threat uh, to your connection that he thinks it is. Because if you go to a BDSM play party and somebody else ties you up for him or with him and he you know, develops his skills or somebody else ties him up for and with you and you develop your skills and then you two fuck like crazy at that party with one of you in bondage, you'll see that allowing that other person in a little bit wasn't a threat to your sexual connection but really enhanced your sexual connection. So I think the idea of getting to a sex club, obviously exhibitionism appeals to you on some level to get to a sex club, to get to a swingers party and just play with each other. And that is something that people often do at sex parties, at swingers clubs, um, in public sex environments. People will go with their partner or go with the one or two people that they want to mess around with and only have sex with each other. You are not violating a social norm or an expectation in a swingers club or a public sex environment if you aren't available to strangers or others. Now, you don't know if that appeals to your husband. That idea appeals to your husband to go to a swingers club to be seen having sex. Obviously, it appeals to you. You threw it on the table. Does it appeal to him? Is it something that he's willing to do. Also, let's talk about the definition of monogamy here. There are a lot of gay couples whose definition of monogamy is a bit more elastic than straight couples' definitions of monogamy. Often you hear when you ask gay couples if they're monogamous that they are, that they only have sex with each other and they only have three ways with each other, that occasionally they'll have a very special guest star, occasionally they'll bring somebody else in, but because they're both there and in the room and it's sex that they're having together, even if there's a third person present, that they still regard that as monogamy plus or monogamish, as I like to call it, but they describe themselves as monogamous. So monogamous plus. And maybe that's something you could throw out there to your boyfriend. I don't know if you're interested in messing around with him and another girl at the same time. Maybe you are. I don't know if he's interested. And for a lot of straight guys, particularly a lot of straight guys in Texas, it's a higher bar to clear. I don't know if he's interested in messing around with you and another guy, but it's certainly a conversation that you should risk having. You know, sometimes people avoid these conversations because they think it might destroy the relationship or it might create so much conflict in the relationship that the relationship falls apart. But boredom also creates conflict in relationship. Boredom also results in relationships falling apart and often not falling apart in a loving and controlled way or coming apart in a loving, controlled way, but exploding because the person who is bored will eventually seek some excitement outside the relationship and almost invariably get discovered. And then, you know, that kind of affair, infidelity, cheating, a lot of relationships don't survive that. Now, some do. We don't want to create a self-fulfilling prophecy where we hammer it into people's heads that if you've been cheated on, that that is always and everywhere the end of the relationship because that's not true. But it often is. It's often something the person who was cheated on can never get past and the relationship collapses. So better to have the conversation about boredom before the affair than wait until after the affair and talk about boredom being at the root of the affair that could imperil the relationship. An affair, cheating, highly likely to result in the end of the relationship. A difficult but loving conversation about how to work on this problem of feeling bored and disconnected early, that can create conflict. Maybe that could lead to the end of the relationship. Highly unlikely to, though. With those conversations, those honest conversations about feeling bored, about wanting to shake it up, about wanting to have adventures with your partner, 
they are likely to improve the relationship and save the relationship. Whereas allowing boredom to fester over time, yeah, that's lighting a fuse that will in the end explode the relationship, blow the relationship up, whether anybody cheats or not. Hi, Dan. I have a question (laughs) about drag queens. Can you just explain if there is like a sexual fetish about drag queens or if it's just an aesthetic thing that's enjoyed? I just don't understand what what it's about. Drag is about performance and self-expression. It's also a, a costume in the same way that a dominatrix's outfit is a costume often in the same way that even and I'm not drawing a direct parallel here, kind of a clown outfit is a, a, a costume. It, people create a persona when they do drag and they get to be someone they're not. Often when you meet drag queens when they're out of drag, they're shy and reserved unless they're in the workroom on RuPaul's Drag Race where they're encouraged to be neither shy nor reserved and they're very different when they're in face, when they're all turned out and they're in drag. And uh, again, it's a performance. It's not a sexual fetish. You don't get laid a lot when you're a drag queen. You don't go out in drag to pick up dudes, which is not to say that there aren't some dudes out there who are into drag queens. There are. They are called, or they were called back when I was doing drag, panty chasers. They were very into the queens. But but for the drag queen, as opposed to the forced feminization fetishist, almost always a straight guy, as opposed to a significant chunk, but perhaps a minority of cross-dressers, for whom there is a sexual component, an arousal component, for the drag queen, yeah, no, you're kind of neutering yourself when you go out in drag. However sort of hypersexual the presentation is, you're a drag queen. Most drag queens are gay men. Most drag is done out in gay bars. The men out there looking for sex, when the drag queen is there sort of functioning as almost a high priestess presiding over the the bacchanal, the party – Yeah, those guys aren't looking for those queens. They may look up to them, may be drawn to the glamour, they may be drawn to the glitz, but they're not drawn sexually. And the drag queen doesn't go out to pull people to her sexually. What I loved about doing drag in gay bars back when I did a lot of drag in gay bars was you were sort of stepping outside the sexual competition and the perceived manufactured scarcity. Only so many hot guys, all of them chasing after each other. When you were in drag, you literally said, I am opting out. I am not here to get laid. I am not here to pick up you or your boyfriend or the guy that you are interested in. I am just here to hang and talk and party. And you can approach me. And it's not going to be necessarily sexual or perceived as potentially sexual. You know, when guys approach guys in gay bars, even just to say, hey, The assumption is, well, one or the other of you is interested, and if somebody ain't interested, then it's awkward and has to be shut down. But when you approach a drag queen at a gay bar and say, hey, there's no presumption of interest and therefore often no awkwardness around managing someone else's expectations or desires. So, yeah, no, they're not a sexual thing, not to drag. And speaking of drag, we just recorded an interview with a very special guest who does a deep dive in a new book on the subject of drag, and we're going to drop it in now. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with an old friend of the show, Simon Doonan. Time had come to tell the full history of drag, and there is no better man to tell it than Simon, a former drag queen himself, creative ambassador for Barney's, expert judge on NBC's Making It with Nick Offerman and Amy Poehler, 
author of numerous books, guest on the Lovecast a long time ago, and he has a new book out on the history of drag called Drag, The Complete Story, just published by Lawrence King. Simon, thank you so much for coming back on the show. How are you? I'm good. I've missed you. I've missed you, too. And I'm sure our listeners who remember you uh, weighing in and giving fashion advice on our show, and fashion doesn't come up often on our show, uh, long ago, are thrilled to hear your voice again. Um, not that they can only find you on my show. You're all over the place, and you're on NBC, and congratulations on all your success. Oh, well, thanks. Thank you. So what inspired you to write Drag, The Complete Story? Well, um, nothing, really. <laughs> <laughs> no. Here's what happened, and I think this is germane, I'm guessing, to your point of view. I had just done a book on soccer players celebrating the mad, crazy culture around wealthy soccer players, you know, the Beckhams, the Ronaldos. And the publisher said to me, do you want to do a book on drag? So I said, let me think about it. And I thought, you know, doing a book is so much work. It's like three years of slog. Mm -hmm. And so you have to really feel that there is something that's interesting to you when you go into it. So I had this, you know, month-long period of thinking, why drag? Why now? What is interesting about drag now? You know, obviously the history is very interesting, but why now? Um, because you're saddled with it for three years, you know, enormous amount of work and grind. So you have to really go into it believing it. And I, and I came up with four things that I think make drag kind of sizzling right now. And what are those four things? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> no, here they are. First of all, the politicization of drag, the Trump bump. You know, we have Meryl Streep uh, in drag dressed up as, as Donald Trump. Um, Saturday Night Live, this explosion of satire, um, very effective satire. Drag um, Melissa satire. More drag, king drag, drag king satire. And then drag king satire, but also drag queens becoming politically engaged. Mm -hmm. You know, that was um, everyone from RuPaul to Bunny. Suddenly, the politicization of drag, the engagement with politics um, was sort of fairly major. Then, second reason, the gender revolution. We're in the middle of this gender revolution. And I think of so many times I've been listening to your podcast and you'll have a cis gendered woman calling in who identifies as a gay male and has a drag alter ego and you know this this exploration of identity androgyny gender fluid gender neutral this is something that is unprecedented and i think you were really early on all that yeah we were talking about that a long time ago the idea that you know a lot of what we think of as gender and hardwired is really just the performance of gender and drag has helped more i think straight people see that gender is often a performance and a construct and not something essential and biological. Yeah, I mean, I my recollection is, is listening to your show so many times and hearing, being quite startled by these new ways of seeing things, which are so fascinating. And we're right in the thick of it now, obviously. The um, and, and during the three years I was writing this book, it's the, it's the velocity of change has increased dramatically. Like, um, you know, if you go to drag con now, there are straight women who identify as drag queens, 10-year-old kids. And, you know, every day brings new nuances 
um, to this new gender revolution. So, and it, a lot of it has dotted lines to drag, as you say. So that's another reason. So that's reason number two. Reason number three, which may be less interesting to you, feel free to correct me, is the look queens. There's this sort of shimmering, astonishing artistry which has come into drag out of left field, never been seen before. You know, yes, we've had Lee Bowery, we've had Marcel Duchamp in drag. There's always been a connection between art and drag, but these astonishing stuff people are doing on their faces that I couldn't do on a flat piece of paper and I'm good at drawing, mm -hmm. you know, um, that's a new thing. And then, of course, number four is RuPaul's Drag Race. Yeah, we can't talk about drag without talking about RuPaul's Drag Race and the impact that it's had. The impact it's had is immeasurable. I think like um, it's now global. It's just unfurling in the UK. You know, there's so many levels on that show. You can take it as a, a sort of a window into this subculture, or you can just enjoy it as an act of transformation or both. Like it, it just works on so many levels. It's extraordinary. And I'm not surprised it's a big hit. So the book, uh, Drag the Complete Story, you don't just tell the story of RuPaul's Drag Race. You're not just talking about the last few decades or even the 20th century. You go back to the ancient Romans, the ancient Greeks, this idea of drag as really a constant in human cultures and societies. And I found that fascinating. Yeah, it waxes and wanes. But when it waxes, it's we're in a waxing <laughs> <laughs> we're in a waxing period right now, I would suggest. And um no, it's so fascinating. I mean, there's the castrati from, you know, the 18th century, these men who were castrated so they could sing in high voices because women weren't allowed to sing opera. In ancient Rome, when the empire was starting to sort of crumble and go all nasty, Nero, Caligula, you know, they couldn't keep out of those lady togas. <laughs> you, but you don't, you know, although you go, you dive, do a deep dive into history, you don't tell the book, you don't tell the story chronologically. You break it out into different sort of themes or genres of drag, art drag, glamour drag, butch drag, historical drag, comedy drag. What, what, why did you tell the story in that way? Why is that the better way to tell the story than going chronologically? Well, my first attempt was to tell it chronologically. And I realized after a few weeks of scrawling away with my quill pen that this was not going to work because, it, you know, the history of drag is very uneven. So you have all this explosive fun stuff mythology, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Egypt, and then, you know, the Middle Ages, honey, it's pretty dismal. There's not like great VHS tapes of Middle Age of <laughs> drag queens from the Middle Ages cavorting. You know, there's just no material. Mm -hmm. So um, the chronological thing felt very uneven. So, and my goal was really, I feel like young people don't realize, this is a sweeping generalization, young people may or may not realize that history is hilarious, funny, camp, brutal, crazy, fascinating. You know, they see it as being this dry, the certain dryness to it. And I wanted to whip them into a frenzy about history so they would be frantically googling Philippe Duc d'Orléans the brother of Louis the 14th who could not keep out of a frock <laughs> uh, speaking of men who can't keep out of frocks there's two more things I want to be sure we have time to touch on one is 
you as a Brit must be fascinated watching the bedwetting going on on the American right in this country about drag queen story hours. These took off in public libraries where a drag queen would come and read children's book to children. And a lot of people on the right, Ben Shapiro, people at National Review, are losing their minds over this because, you know, a, a child being in the room with a man in drag is going to somehow ruin or corrupt or destroy that child or destroy the nation. As a Brit, you must be just flabbergasted by this because of the long history of pantos and parents bringing their children at Christmas to these shows all over the UK and, you know, in the West End in London that feature drag queens. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up in the dismal, austerity-riddled 1950s, and um, but literally, paradoxically, even though it was illegal to be gay, it was illegal to walk around in a frock, we were literally drowning in drag between Panto and the, the favorite comics of the time. Comedy drag back then, it was a lot of straight men throwing on frocks and having knobbly knees competitions. But it was drag, 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 drag. And we all grew up with that and Danny LaRue. So, yeah, it's funny that something seems so playful and innocuous is seen as sinister. But, you know, we had that in movie drag. You know, it's often it's seen as very comic during the silent movie era. And then once we get to the anxious mid-century, it's seen as being deeply sinister, hashtag Norman Bates. Mm. You know, so it, it changes. Um, but in England, it stayed pretty consistently innocuous, playful. And, and you know, it's evolving, so it's less misogynist. And, and, and the pantos didn't it, die out with austerity in the 1950s. The pantos are still a big tradition in the UK. The, you know, Christmas comes, these panto shows go up, um, which, you know, are campy, like Christmas theater light fair. And they have drag queens in them and all the parents there bring their kids and everybody loves it. And it's not a problem. And yet, you know, parents bring their kids to see a drag queen in the United States and they have a finger pointed at them. They're accused of abusing their children or indoctrinating their children. What do you what do you think that comes from? Is that the Puritan thing that we don't really have so much in Europe? Is that... I mean, yeah, I, you know. often, I often think it's because Canada got the French, Australia got the convicts, and we got the Puritans. The people who tore down Shakespeare's globe were dumped on this continent, and we are still living with them. All right, I have one last thing I, I want to get your reaction to. Uh, do you have email there? Can you can you open an email if I send you one right now? Um, yes, I will um, open my laptop and get on my lorgnette so I can see properly. All right, I just um, sent you the email, and I just want to get your reaction. Please take a look. So I, I've sent you a picture of a drag queen. What do you think? <laughs> how, 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 how's she doing? <laughs> you look pretty good. Wait, the wait, I didn't, great. I didn't say it was me. I just wanted your like unbiased <laughs> opinion of this look, of this queen. What do you think? I am very impressed. I love the tendrils coming out of your hair. Um, I'm a little concerned that you've cut off the shoes. Is that because you were wearing like a real basic NAF <laughs> shoe and you want just cropped it off? It's because... You had one of your at-risk youth <laughs> chop those shoes off. No, it's because uh, this photo is so old because I did drag so long ago that it was taken with a camera that, you know, 
film. You couldn't take like 400,000 photographs and then pick the best one. You like got one or two shots and there were no good shots with my shoes in it. All right. So this, I, I've sent you a picture of me in drag from 25 years ago. I was a drag queen like you were a drag queen. I did drag for a decade at least and I looked good. Tell me I look good. Um, you look fantastic. I mean, you look like a drag queen because you've got those big guns. Um, and let me ask you, are you doing Marilyn or is it, what's the, um, or is there no, you're just doing you? Uh, that was my drag uh, persona, Helvetica Bold. That was my drag name. <laughs> and when I was a blonde, I was Helvetica Bold. When I was a, wore black hair, I was her sister who'd married a Greek shipping magnet, Helvetica Bold Oblique. But that's Helvetica <laughs> Bold, and maybe I am doing a bit of a Maryland pose there in a Maryland mouth, but that was just trying to be me, just trying to be Helvetica. So uh, I show you that to put what I'm going to ask you next or, or lay in front of you next into context. I did drag. I love drag. I, I, have a, I have boxes of shoes still that I won't throw away, even though I haven't done drag in 15 years. Simon, I'm bored with drag like i stopped watching rupaul like four or five years ago i've never been to drag con like i i read the stories i follow the news i follow the queens um but on some level like i go to a bar and if it's a drag show and like the queens from rupaul are there and they're gonna lip sync their lip syncs i just kind of like go okay okay and i and i see the artistry i see this explosion you know the the exquisite sort of makeup does that people do now which is like leagues above the makeup I did then and you know the, the outfits that are themselves kind of deconstructed and reconstructed and have like interior commentaries on uh, on gender and sexuality I, I I see the artistry but I just don't find it engaging anymore so I really wanted to get you on the phone a to talk about your book but also b to ask you for an intervention Simon help me fall back in love with drag I don't know what's wrong with me well, I think your way back in, because you are, after all, you, is um, the politicization of drag. Um, you know, there's so many queens who are engaging with it politically, and I think um, that would definitely be the best way back in for you, because that's your deal, too, honey. It is. And, you know, that used to be a thing. Drag queens used to say they didn't deal with politics, and there was a lot of sort of this is a space or drag is a space where we don't argue about current events and now there's you know drag and drag shows that have some commentary about current events that was kind of drag i did back in the day i did a whole number as helvetica attacking newt gingrich during the monica and bill impeachment of bill clinton and here we are back in impeachment zone with donald trump and hopefully it fucking happens so maybe political is my way back in but i think it really is and there's so many astonishing i have a whole chapter on radical drag and it ends talking about some of these drag queens now who post-election um you know went out and and found out that you know how inactive people had been they didn't vote during the election and became galvanized by that so it's not just dragging up as politicians but you know drag queens who feel under threat and galvanize and you know and i think looking at you here i think maybe it's time to give it a whirl again but with a political angle Maybe. You know, I did political drag here in Washington State a long time ago. There was a right-wing fundamentalist Christian named Ellen Craswell who ran for governor and in a nine-way Republican primary contest got the nomination with 18% of the vote. And I dressed up as her in drag and made appearances, dressed as Ellen Craswell, 
all over Washington state. And it ended up being addressed in the gubernatorial debate here in the Democratic candidate at the time, Gary Locke, had to disavow me and condemn me during a debate for being so rude as to dress up as Ellen Crosswell <laughs> and make fun of her. All right. So maybe you're right. Maybe political is my way back in. Yes, um, completely. Because there's so many facets of drag now that just didn't really exist before, you know? Yes, there are. There are more facets. I, I get it. It's so much more complicated. Maybe part of my thing is like it's so much harder to do drag now. Like maybe I'm just intimidated because my makeup skills will never be as good as uh, Sasha Velour's and everyone else's. See, I think we've gotten to the, the crux of it. When I did drag, I never expected to look good, nice, attractive, appealing. I always looked kind of horrible, which I was fine with. I think that you're, when you did back, drag back then, you were very focused on looking good and looking attractive. Maybe as an older person, you have to divest yourself of that pressure where you don't have to look, you, you, you need a new persona like... Um, Late stage Princess Margaret. Yeah. <laughs> to revive that. Exactly. The book is Drag, The Complete Story by Simon Doonan and proceeds partially benefit the Ali Forney Center, which helps homeless LGBTQ youth in New York City. The book is Drag, The Complete Story by Simon Doonan. And the book is also a fundraiser for uh, something you care very much about. You want to tell us that? Yes, um, I'm very proud to be associated with the Ali Forney Center in Harlem, LGBTQ youth, homeless drag queens and others. And uh, 100% of my proceeds benefit the Alley Forney Center. So get drag, the complete story, learn about drag, and uh, do some good in the process. Simon, thank you so much. So fun. I love this picture. <laughs> well, it's yours to treasure always. It can be your screensaver from now on. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old gay male in the Midwest, and I have a question about dating someone who's recently divorced. Um, I was wondering, you know, what is the proper etiquette, if there is one, for talking about their ex and that relationship and how soon you can kind of start escalating a new relationship with them? Um, we've been dating for about three months now, and I sense a little bit of hesitation with moving into a serious relationship with me, and I completely understand that. We both kind of bonded over ending serious relationships at the beginning of this year, and we really like each other. Things are going really, really well. I'm totally okay with being patient. I was just curious if you had any thoughts on how it should go in the beginning, um, and if I should take caution and you know be very uh, thoughtful in how slow we should go at the beginning um, because I really like him and definitely getting to a place where I love him. Not quite there yet, but definitely getting there. And I don't know if that is maybe bad from his perspective, if he's kind of just ending a seven year marriage. I don't ascribe to the whole rebound theory that if somebody got out of a relationship and it was a bumpy out or, you know, long-term, serious, committed relationship, a marriage of seven years ended, that that person is incapable of falling in love with somebody else three months later or six months later, or that they shouldn't allow themselves to develop feelings for anyone else three months later or six months later, or that they're not ready in, in, in three or six months. They either feel about you the way you feel about them, or they don't. And that 
is going to be true, whether they've been single all their life, whether they just got out of a relationship, whether they're in a relationship, when they meet you, they either feel the same way or are on a track toward getting to the same place roughly where you are. People don't move together in perfect unison through these kinds of feelings or they're not. You want to be sensitive to where people are at when you meet them. And if somebody just got out of a seven-year relationship, maybe they don't want to be rushed into making a- another large commitment. That doesn't mean they can't feel feelings. It just means they might want to slow down on other things they might have rushed into in the past, like saying the I love yous, like moving in together, like signing a lease together. I think one of the things that divorce does is demonstrates to people that the more enmeshed and intertwined you become legally, the more you own together, the more you are owned really kind of in a marriage by each other, that when the relationship ends, ripping all of those things apart is a protracted legal process and a nightmare and a headache. And you may then want to maintain separate apartments a little bit longer next time. Or you may decide that that's not something that you ever want to do again. You you never want to own property together again. You never want to be married and responsible for someone else's debts in the same way again. You might value your independence in a new way. But that's not about how you feel about somebody. That's just about the kind of relationship model or structure that's going to work for you going forward. And the person who knows what he wants and what he's comfortable with, you know, is him. And the person who knows what you want and what you're comfortable with is you. And you guys have to negotiate that, negotiate the shape your relationship will take once you determine that he's who you want to be with, you're who he wants to be with. But just a few months into this new relationship, you don't know. In a way, you don't really fully know him yet, and he doesn't really fully know you yet. And these feelings of, oh, I almost feel like I could say I love you to him, that's a great sign for the future. What you're doing is sort of looking at this person and thinking that there's a lot of possibility and potential there. And only time will reveal if your hunch, your judgment was correct, that there was indeed time and potential there. You may wake up two months from now and realize that he ain't what you want. He may wake up two months from now, 20 minutes from now, two days from now, realize you aren't what he wants. And perhaps it would have something to do with the divorce, but just as likely or more likely it would have nothing to do with the timing of his divorce and the timing of your meeting and everything to do with who you are, who he is, and whether you guys are right together. And you can't rush that. You can only as high stakes as these feelings are and, you know, as much as it sometimes feels in a new relationship when you're becoming invested and you don't know where the other person's at, as much as that can feel like rolling around in a bathtub full of fucking razor blades, you want to enjoy this time and you don't want to rush through it to get to commitment or, you know, what the future is going to look like because this present, you know, this moment that you're in is kind of intoxicating and heady. And once you're in that long-term relationship, whether it's with this guy or with some other guy to be named later, you're not going to get these kinds of feelings back. You can only really experience these feelings at this stage. And yet when we're in this stage, we often want to rush past these feelings because we really are vulnerable. We really are on a limb. We really feel emotionally imperiled in a way. And yet it's a very special time or, you know, series of moments in our lives, if we have multiple relationships, as most of us do, 
where we feel just so alive to this other human being, to what they're awakening in us, to the possibility of a newly imagined future with them, that we really should relax and enjoy it more and slow it down. So it's great that you're feeling everything that you're feeling. Try to stay in the moment. And if indeed he has some issues around the divorce and how quickly after it you two met, sensing that you are not pushing him toward some commitment that he may not be ready to make or imagining some future that may make him feel locked in, sensing that you're really just living in the moment, it should set him at ease. And it should set you at ease as well, because this is a wonderful moment and I want you to relax and enjoy it. Hey, Dan, this is in response to the caller in 677 that had the issue with the boyfriend leaving his stuff in her apartment. You might have made a mistake with that because she's running the risk of getting her deposit kept by her landlord. So my suggestion is, and I've done this before, is go to one of those self-storage places. You can get a small kind of oversized locker space for about 35 bucks. You put all of the stuff in there, put a cheap padlock from the dollar store on it, leave him a message saying your stuff is at such and such a place. And if they don't pick it up, then it's their problem. And the people at the storage place will be happy to take his junk and donate it or sell it at auction. This way, you save yourself a lot more hassle and you don't have to see the motherfucker again. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm calling about the episode where uh, the woman is doesn't want to fuck people who voted for Donald Trump, which is totally reasonable. And I have a suggestion that she consider, you know, expanding the pool of non-Trump voting people she's meeting. And a great way to do that is to volunteer on a political campaign. Obviously, she can, you know, pick whoever she likes in the Democratic primary. She can also think about, you know, local elections. She can look at swing left, sister district places. Um, you know, she's in a deep, deep red area. There's probably places that are purple nearby that need people to help get the boat out and swing them into blue, you know, and, and if she isn't decided yet on a candidate in the Democratic primary, she should think about Elizabeth Warren. Hi, Dan. This is a response to the woman on last week's episode who felt like she wasn't a feminist because she didn't want to have sex when she was on her period. First of all, your advice was spot on. Of course, she is a feminist for not wanting to have sex when she doesn't want to. That is all about advocating for ourselves. And I think your advice to her was really good. If you don't want to do something, don't do it. Um, I also wanted to put out there that I really related to her story and that she feels really sexual when she's ovulating during certain times of her cycle, but at other times, sex is just not interesting to her. I feel exactly the same way um, when I'm ovulating. I'm super sexual. And then the closer I get to my period, the hornier I get. But as soon as my period hits, I'm not interested in sex at all. The way that I've worked through this with my partner, who is really wonderful and loving and supporting, is that when I'm going to have my period, I usually say something kind of cute to him, like, I've closed the shop for a few days. And um, and he knows that's his cue to go out and buy me a burger or some meat to cook me a burger and some dark chocolate. Um, he kind of fawns over me and cuddles me a lot and really gives me a lot of warmth and security and hugs when I'm on my period, which is what feels really good. At the same time, that also makes me feel really loving and um, and good towards him. So one of the things that I like to do is I like to watch a movie with him while I'm on my period and he'll lay down and I'll kind of lay in his lap and I'll 
give him a blowjob while we're watching a movie. You know, I blow him to completion or sometimes I just hang out with his dick in my mouth because I really like it. And there's no better snack than a dick in your mouth when you're on your period. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. The 15th Annual Hump Film Festival, My Dirty Little Porn Film Festival, opens in Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Vancouver, and Olympia, Washington in mid-November. I will be hosting screenings myself in Seattle, Portland, and Vancouver. And then Hump will tour the country, the 15th Annual Hump. It is a great lineup this year. If you want to see it first, you're going to have to get your butt to Seattle, Portland, San Francisco, Vancouver, or Olympia, or sit tight and Hump will come to a city near you next year. Again, go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets, and tickets for the premiere screenings are selling out fast. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Simon Doonan on Twitter at Simon Doonan. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.